If you have your Bible, please open it to the Gospel of John in the 19th chapter. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, uh, there should be one in a seat near you, beneath you or at least nearby. And if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, if you're looking in the, in the Bibles there in the pew, I'm in John's Gospel on page 905 in the Pew Bible. John chapter 19. This is what John tells us, one of Jesus' original twelve disciples who were also called apostles, the one who is nearest to Him, who in telling us the life of Jesus gives us the most intimate portrait. John writes this, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, see, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is in, in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, 
I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took His garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also His tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the Scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were His mother and His mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw His mother and the disciple whom He loved standing nearby, He said to His mother, Woman, behold your son. Then He said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to His own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to His mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, it is finished. And He bowed His head and gave up His spirit. Since it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled, not one of His bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says they will look on Him on whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where He was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. That's what they did to my Savior. And it turned the world upside down. The disciples who fled were emboldened when they saw Him alive. And Paul, who hated the very name of Jesus and every single thing that was ever said about him, met him alive, back from the dead, just as promised. And the fierce and most strictest of all the rabbis, the star student of one of their truly famous rabbis, left everything behind. He wrote a letter saying he considered it all trash, refuse, so that he would have Jesus instead. 
And Paul went literally as far as his life and strength would take him all over the Roman Empire, going into dark, evil places that he had been told as an observant Jew and a Pharisee at that to avoid at all costs. And a city named Corinth, who's so incredibly wicked that the name of the city itself became kind of a watchword, a proverb, a nickname for lo- to, meaning to lose control and to truly debauch yourself and denigrate yourself in the pursuit of pleasure. Paul preached powerfully there. And many of these pagans came to faith just as Paul had. And he wrote them two letters in your, that you can find in your New Testament pleading with them, correcting them, instructing them, trying to form and fill up this newfound baby faith in Jesus that was so very different from anything they'd ever known. And in his second letter, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in a sentence, he tells us the why, the reason of the story I just read to you. He gives you the reason for the cross. And here it is. I'd like you to read that with me. Here's what was happening on the cross of Christ. Here's why the soldiers were permitted to abuse Him. Here's why His disciples were allowed, one of them, a false disciple, Judas, to betray Him and the rest to run frightened for their own lives. Here's why His mother, who loved Him dearly, had to stand, I'm sure, with tears dripping down her face, thinking that The boy she had first, the baby she had first laid in a manger had come to this. Here's why all of this happened. Read God's Word with me. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. If you had one sentence to understand the meaning of the life death, and resurrection of Jesus. You could look all through the Bible and maybe not found a better one than this. It's surprising, especially in in the first part. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us. See, what sets Jesus apart from every other human being who has lived because He was the Son of God who became a human being for our sake is the fact that He was sinless. No one has ever been able to say that. The only people who have claimed it are so clearly deranged that people avoid them, institutionalize them, fear them. Jesus lived a life of wisdom, of supreme intelligence. He built real friendships. He labored quietly, apparently, in a village of no particular importance as a carpenter's son. In other words, he plied that trade for some 30 years before he emerged and undertook the mission that God had sent him on, and for three years did things that only God can do. He gave sight back to a man born blind. Every time Jesus met a funeral procession, He brought it to a glorious, happy, shocking end by bringing back to the dead the person who was being carrying along or mourned. That man was sinless. 
His every word, His every action, His choices, His attitudes, His motives, everything that could be seen of Him testified to the most skeptical of people that Jesus was sinless. Only Jesus in the same gospel of John chapter 8 is the only person in human history who could stand before people who hated Him and ask them this question, who among you accuses me of sin? And they were quiet. See, our reality is the people who know us best know our faults best. They may love them. They may love us in spite of them. But they know our weakness. They know our selfishness. They know our sin. And here's what Paul's telling us. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us. That's a troubling phrase. God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us. What could that possibly mean? I've spent years thinking about that phrase. Anytime I read 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and I come across verse 21, I'm arrested by the shocking nature of Paul's language. That God, the Father who sent the Son, that same God made His Son, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin. And He did it for us. That's what Paul's telling these pagans who embarrassed him, who frustrated him. If you've read his letters, you can see how human, how real, how frail these people are. They had scandalous sin in that church. And yet Paul loved them and wrote them to correct them. And these people of all Christians who nobody would lift up as an example of what it meant to know Jesus, he wrote them, of all people, the glorious good news that God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us. What could that possibly mean? Well, wiser men than I have spent a lot of time thinking about that, but it means at least a few things. It means, first of all, and the most obvious thing and what most Christians most readily think of, it means that on that cross, Jesus was treated as if He were the sinner. One of the greatest preachers to ever preach in our language, Charles Spurgeon, said something like this, to look at the cross of Christ, you would think that God loved us more than His own Son. That's the good news. He was treated as if he were the guilty party. Pilate himself knew it. That political conniver and maneuverer did his very best to not stain his conscience with the death of the most innocent man he'd ever met, the only truly and completely innocent man he'd ever met, but his political courage failed him. And he loved power, and he loved comfort, and he loved being in Caesar's employ more than he loved the truth. So Jesus was treated as a sinner. So that that doesn't become too abstract for you, understand this. When Jesus was on the cross, He was truly thinking of you and your sin. He was thinking of the bad habits you can't shake. He was thinking of the things that your conscience accuses you of and tells you you're guilty. He was thinking of the shame that you bear. 
He was looking at your whole life, the past you regret, the present that is difficult, and the future that makes you fearful and worried sometimes. He was looking at all of that, and the book of Hebrews says that when Jesus was on the cross, He despised the shame of it because He was looking ahead to the joy that was set before Him. And that joy was taking your place and being treated as a sinner. I think it also means that Jesus Himself is the sin offering. I mean, this is shocking language, that the one who had no sin becomes sin. That means that He Himself is the offering. He is personally the payment. And it means that the person of Jesus, the the person of Jesus, all God and all man, somehow mysteriously present in one person. That Roman cross, crudely fashioned to kill a man in a few hours, that was the target for all of God's justice, to be poured out on the undeserving, for the sin offering to be accepted. There's a lot of people who, in calling themselves Christian, cannot conceive of a God who is just and punishes sin, much less His own Son. Let me explain that to you briefly. God cannot tolerate sin because He's good, because He's just. If I were running for a criminal, if I were running for a judge and wanted to gain access and gain a judgeship over the criminal courts, if I made you this simple promise, I don't care who they are and what they've done, I don't care if they admit it, they show up in my courtroom, they're all going free. Would you vote for me on those terms? No one would. You would all say, no, we we expect you to do what's right. If they're falsely accused, we expect you to understand that and to let them go. If they're guilty, we we expect you to deal out the justice that that particular crime deserves. Well, God's a good judge. He hates sin and He punishes sin because He's good. He's a good judge. And in His justice, His justice was met and satisfied by His immense, incomprehensible love for the guilty, for me. Scripture asks this question, Lord, if You would mark iniquities, if You were to mark sin, if You were to keep a record and hold everyone us accountable for what we have done wrong, the question is, who could stand? And the answer is no one, not in the sight of the judge who knows everything. That's why Paul says, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that here's the purpose for Jesus identifying so closely with our sin, serving as our sin offering, and serving as the one who was the guilty party, even though truly He wasn't. The point of all that, Paul says, was this, so that in Him, in Jesus, we might become what? You see, it's better than forgiveness. If you think that all Jesus can do for you is forgive you, you've only understood about half of the good news. It's much more than forgiveness. All forgiveness can do is wipe the record clean. Paul says that God in Christ did something much better. Yes, there was forgiveness, but there was also a credit of the very righteousness of Christ. There was a sweet exchange, my sin for His righteousness. 
so that when God looks at someone who loves and trusts His Son, Jesus, be amazed at this. He sees you in the same way He sees His own Son. It's so much better than mere forgiveness. See, the best a human court can do for you, the very best a court can do for you if you've been accused of a crime, the best you can hope for is that they will say, not guilty. No one can make you good. They can't make you worthy. They can't make you righteous. All any human court can do is in this particular matter regarding these actions in this period of time, we do not believe He did it. We find Him not guilty. God does much more than that. He declares you not only not guilty, but He declares you as righteous as His own Son, Jesus. What a Savior this is to exchange lives with me, to be treated as if He were the guilty one, to become my sin offering, to make His body, His humanity, the locust, the target of all of God's justice so that in turn He could look at the likes of me and say to me in some mysterious, only God could do it kind of way, I will account for you as if you were as good, as righteous, as faithful, as loving as Jesus Himself. It's, it's beyond. It's, it's too much. That's one of the reasons, by the way, that heaven won't be boring. In every moment in heaven, you'll know yourself to be more loved, I believe, as we go on through eternity. And you'll love Him more after being there ten years than on the first day you arrived. You'll never outgrow that relationship. You'll never outgrow that love. That grace will never, ever, ever cease to fascinate you and comfort you. No one ever tires of love. They might tire of pet names and silly jokes but no one has ever said, you've loved me too much. I wish you'd love me less. No one's ever said that. No one ever will. And the God who is a righteous judge also describes Himself simply as love. And it was love that did all this. Here's what Jesus did for you. Read it for me one more time. Here's the gospel. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. For the last few years on Good Friday, we've had a, we've established what's a little bit of a tradition now. We have these three crosses, which are simple reminders of the sacrifice of Jesus. And we, for the last few years, we've written down something that we are grateful to have God's forgiveness in something that maybe still haunts us, something we still wince when we remember. This year, we're going to do the, the, same, kind of, the same kind of symbolic act. You're invited to participate. There's no obligation. If you'd just rather sit there and sing and worship, that's fine. But let me suggest to you that you can do it the way we have been doing it. And you might write down one of the sins that Jesus died for you that you're glad He covered. I'll give you an example. 
If I were to focus on a sin that besets me, something I don't like about myself, that has been replaced with the goodness and the righteousness of Jesus, I would write the word impatience and nail it to one of these crosses to remind myself that at the real cross, my impatience was substituted for the patience of a loving Savior. But this year, let me make a different suggestion. You may do that, or you may simply write down, if you're a believer in Christ, if you've given your trust to Jesus. I don't mean if you're perfect. I don't mean if you're mature. I mean if you're saved, if you've trusted Jesus to be your Savior. Let me suggest to you simply that you write your name and underneath it the word that Jesus died to make true of you, righteous. See, not many people are willing to write that because we know in our day-to-day behavior and our day-to-day experience, we're not. That's the good news I'm announcing to you. It's not about you. It's not up to you. It's not your track record. It's not your life that's being evaluated. The life of Christ was evaluated. That's why He was sent to the cross. That's why He willingly went to the cross to make this glorious exchange so that God made Him who had no sin to be sin for you so that you, trusting Christ, might become the very righteousness of God Himself. Father, as we turn now to these crosses and we consider an act of worship, whether that's singing along or writing down in our own simple handwriting our name and this word righteous, receive our worship. And as in turn, Lord, we turn to take communion and remind ourselves of your body and your blood your body torn, your blood shed, that we might be saved. Receive our gratitude that you, Lord, would send your Son to take our sins so that we may have you and your righteousness, the righteousness of God Himself instead. Thank you.